Welcome back to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. We're doing baseball. This is a baseball history podcast. Yes, bi-weekly. Yeah. Baseball history podcast. If you uh, are unfamiliar with the format, hopefully by now you're kind of familiar with the format. But if you're not, uh, uh, we take turns every week exchanging stories from baseball history where the other person doesn't know what the story is going to be about. Yeah. And we have had some doozies so far. Uh, and this one is going to be fun. I'm actually very excited uh, for this one because it's got a little local vibe. I was going to say, you dropped some hints on me yep. the other day. We, we should stop doing that. No, I like doing the hints. You like, like the hints? I like telling because then it, it gets you thinking it a little bit. gets you intrigued bit. a bit, I yeah, guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I gave away nothing to you. That's true. That's I gave true. away nothing. But That's I did true. tell you that some of it takes place in Toronto, in Canada. I don't know if we've had one of those yet. If you don't know, we are coming to you from uh, my house in Toronto today. Uh, mm-hmm. We both live in the Toronto area, at least. Uh, so this is this we is we be... did have the Doug Alt episode. Oh yeah, just we to did interject have the Doug quickly. Alt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Doug Alt, check out that one. That is a very, very uh, lovely but tragic story of Doug Alt, uh, a very uh, well known uh, Toronto Blue Jay, mm-hmm. but probably hero. probably not very well known outside of outside of the Toronto no, hemisphere. No. Um, Follow us on Twitter and uh, Instagram. At uh, Doing Baseball and at Doing Dot Baseball. Yes. Dot Baseball on the Instagram. At Check doing us out baseball. on Spotify. Yep. And Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us a review. Give us a rating. That actually really helps us. So please, even if it's bad, don't make it bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sean. You, uh, you've kind of prefaced the story a little bit already. Let's get into it. Tell me a story. All right, let's do this. So... Arthur Irwin. Arthur Irwin. Is one of the most influential and controversial figures in early baseball history. Okay. He was born right here in the city of Toronto on February 14th, 1958. Valentine's Day. 1858. I'm going to do that. It's 1858. 1858. Once again, we're in the 1800s. Uh, To this day, he's said to be the best shortstop ever born in Canada. If you do the math on that, we're about 160 years later. Uh, he's also I can't think of a good Canadian shortstop off the top of my head. Tough. I thought we were gonna have this discussion at the end of the episode, but oh my god, let's just there is no Canadian like when you think we got catchers, we got first basemen, we got outfielders, we got pinch hitters, we even got third baseman, Corey Koski. Like it's yeah. it's but there's no... I couldn't yeah, I can't think of a shortstop like I'm thinking like Morno, Matt Stairs, yeah. uh obviously like you Votto, said Koski, Joey Votto, Martin Larry Walker, obviously, yeah. but there is no, well, I don't want to say there's no good Canadian shortstops. There's probably many good Canadian shortstops, but none have had the same impact on the game or in the MLB. As Irwin. As Irwin. Okay, carry on. He's credited with being the inventor of the baseball glove. Oh. Though that's not true at all. Okay. Uh <laughs> His use of the glove, however, 100% did revolutionize the sport. Okay. Without him using the baseball glove, uh, it it would have been a longer time until the the glove became well-known. Was it a... I'm assuming it was a matter of safety? Oh, you'll find out. Okay. Uh, His his nicknames were Doc, Foxy, Sandy, 
and cut rate. <laughs> <laughs> that's a vast, like, that's an array of nicknames. They're not, none of them are no, similar. Normally people have one or two nicknames. This guy, this guy has is four. four. Uh, he was famous in his day, a star player and later a manager that made a lot of money on and off the baseball field. A man who either died accidentally, committed suicide, was murdered, or quite possibly faked his own death. Irwin. Yes. His mysterious death, though, didn't end his story. <laughs> For soon after, a secret he had been hiding was revealed to the world. Oh, uh, that's... That's the most intriguing summary I think we've had for a story so far. Well, let's get into it. So, Erwin, uh, born February 14th, 1858, uh, to uh, Arthur Irwin Sr., who was an immigrant from Ireland to Canada, uh, who worked as a blacksmith, and his mother was Elizabeth Irwin. Uh, at the age of six, Irwin's family moved from Toronto to Boston, where Irwin's baseball life started. He played Sandlot baseball in South Boston with future major league future major leaguer Tommy McCarthy. While attending public school, Irwin excelled as an all-around athlete, and by the age of 15, in 1873, he played shortstop with the Aetna Club of Boston, uh, amateur baseball team, essentially. Okay. So, it was a, But he was pretty good for a 15-year-old to be playing on the team. Yeah. Uh, he would play there for a handful of years before making his professional debut. In 1879, he was recruited by the Worcester Ruby Legs of the Worcester. National. Worcester. Of the, of the, the Worcester Ruby Legs. Yeah. Of, of the, the what league? National Association. Okay. Uh, they did become an NL team for a few years in 1880, though. Mm -hmm. uh, so on June 2nd, 1879, at the age of 21, he made his debut. In his first game, the Ruby Legs were no hit, but Irwin did... Uh, make his mark by making two brilliant plays at third base. This was he played third base for a short time. Right, uh, impressing everyone in attendance. He would play 31 games that year and hit a robust 272. Her, her hitting was never Irwin's forte, though. He was always known for his defensive prowess. In, shortstop. Yeah. Well, so he started at third base. He was a shortstop. Mm -hmm. They said, well, okay, we'll put you at third base. But then in 1880, he took over. So in his first season of actual pro ball, as the Ruby Legs became a National League team in 1880, mm -hmm. uh, he slid over to shortstop and led the Ruby Legs with uh, defensive assists. He had 345 defensive assists in 85 games. So that's pretty good. Like four, four, That's like four plays a game, but th that's that's good at the time. Yeah. Uh, he held his own at the plate, hitting 259. His OPS was a meager 625, but for 1880, that still gave him a, a positive OPS plus. So he was like, okay. uh, like he, so he's essentially a, a pretty. I was gonna say it's it's a, it's an era of. There's of no home the, runs. Yeah, there's no home runs, and there's there's more there's hitting. There's, yeah, there's a fair amount of hitting, but. Well, remember, no one's wearing gloves yet, other than the. Well, we'll get to that. Um, so okay. it's, it's it's you know you much more put the, the ball in play and 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 get a hit. Yeah. Um. So he was pretty average, uh, in that year. So he stayed with the Ruby Legs until the team folded due to poor attendance after the eighteen eighty two season. His hitting got worse, but his def but he was a defensive standout on the field, in a time before the baseball glove was a common tool. 
Imagine playing shortstop with no baseball glove. I can't imagine playing shortstop at the major league level to begin with, let alone <laughs> trying to catch a ball with no fucking glove on. All right. So 1881, he missed a lot of the season. He was sick uh, at the start of the year, which delayed his start, and then broke his leg while running the bases. So I think he only played like 50 games or so. While running the bases? Yeah, well, you never know. It didn't. I tried to find Didn't no drink more. a lot of milk back then. <laughs> I guess not. So... Uh, 1882, as I said, was the last year with the ruby legs as they folded after. The team was terrible, putting up an 18-66 and 66 record before folding out of the National League. Irwin was scooped up by the Providence Grays and was to be team captain. So they were just like, you're on our team and you're captain now. We heard you're good at defense. <laughs> uh, so... Must have a high reputation. Yeah, and he did well with his new club. His bat came alive, he hit 286. Uh, which would be a career high for him, mm-hmm. uh, is even more impressive when you discover during the season, Irwin broke multiple fingers. So <laughs> He's just break, yeah, just he breaking bones so, all the time. Well, he was, he was definitely, uh, he broke fingers fielding balls. That's how, you know, it yeah. was pretty cool. Oh yeah, I guess, to, yeah. So the fact that he was still hitting and he probably, his fingers were probably pretty messed up while he was mm-hmm. hitting. Um, I imagine visibly messed up too, and yeah. they were just like, mm, "Well, he's, he's hitting." Is just is just a, a, the size of a baseball yeah. glove, just with swelling. Um, we use that to our advantage. <laughs> you just beat your hand for yeah. like a half yeah. hour yeah. before the game. Yeah. Go down to the trainer's office; he'll hit you with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is where things get murky. According to the Baseball Hall of Fame biography on Irwin, or the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, this happened in 1885. But Sabre and multiple other resources claim it was in 1883, so that is what we're going to go with. 83. Uh, yes, okay. 1883. Unwilling to sit out with the injury of multiple broken fingers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and the team only had 11 players, so they were like, no. Like, no, we, keep playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Irwin took a large buckskin driving glove, patented it, and fastened some of the fingers together. He sewed the third and fourth fingers together to leave room for his bandages that were covering his fingers. Uh, devising a contraption, Irwin has been credited with popularizing the fielder's glove. So, All right. Uh, first of all, so a driving glove at this time, too, to be clear, yep. there was no cars. It, it, a horse driving glove. Yeah, so you, it's a big, like, a leathery glove, so the... the, the, the the yeah, carriage so straps. You can, yeah, you can hold the reins. Yeah, without without getting blisters or, yeah. or burns on your hands. So, uh, but notice how I said popularizing and not inventing the baseball glove. Right. So there are several clickbait articles that do say Irwin invented the baseball glove, but the truth is he really, really didn't, because catchers and first basemen were already using a type of glove. Right. Uh, Within two weeks of the incident, though, Irwin reached... Imagine the- having to be a catcher, yeah. and there's no glove. Well, we also know that they're throwing underhanded sidearms, right, so it's right, like a little true. bit... But yes, it would still... Still. Yeah, especially just, on I foul I still tips. imagine that they would be trying to throw as hard as they could. Well, yeah, and there would be foul tips, and there would be there would be just about everything, right? Anyway, we should look into that at some point. When did the catchers start wearing gloves? Yeah. Anyway, continue. So, uh... Uh, so two weeks after the incident, Irwin reached a deal with Draper and Mainyard, a struggling leather goods company from Ashland, New Hampshire, for it to be an exclusive manufacturer and seller of the Irwin glove. So hmm. there was a type of one of the first types of baseball gloves was known as the Irwin glove that was made by this leather company. 
many players worried that they would be jeered by crowds for wearing the protective glove. Of course, you it's all about pussies. looking <laughs> cool. I said this in other episodes. It's all about looking cool, man. Especially in the 1880s. The ha- the, yeah, the Chapman one. The helmets. Uh, but that didn't happen, so the crowds did not che- jeer them. Okay. Uh, it... Within a year of Irwin's decision, most MLB players were using some form of baseball glove. Smart. Yeah. So, 1883 was a monumental year for Irwin, not just because he made history on the field with his glove, but he married a Boston woman, Elizabeth, and soon after became the father uh, to four children with Elizabeth, three girls, and one boy. Mm-hmm. The next year, Irwin played a big part as the Grays won the first ever kind of world series championship right uh defeating the american association champs the new york metropolitans in a three-game series making irwin the first ever canadian to play for a championship team another feather to add to his hat so it was the obviously it was the american association versus the nl it was the first time the winner of the two leagues right played a series Against each other. So mm. it was a pre I'd been like doing some yeah. research in yeah. that era, obviously, yeah. through other episodes. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was as good as his career would get on the field, unfortunately. Uh, with the introduction of overhand pitching in 1884, Irwin's numbers at the plate uh, declined throughout his career. Uh, the Providence Grays folded after 1885, and Irwin found himself on the Philadelphia Quakers of the NL. He played with Philadelphia from 1886 to 1889. Uh, His career began to wane. His numbers at the plate dropped more and more, but he still held his own as one of the best fielders in the game. The Quakers were one of the best teams in the NL during this time, always finishing well above 500, but never capturing the title or even really coming close. They Mm -hmm. were were like, you know, six, seven, ten games back all the time, but had a good record. Uh, So... uh, it didn't help uh, that star pitcher Charlie Ferguson died of typhoid fever, typhoid fever, right at the beginning of 1888. Uh, actually, in Irwin's second floor guest bedroom. <laughs> oh, that's somewhat inconvenient for the team and for Irwin, I yeah. guess. So the, just Charlie Ferguson was one of the best pitchers, and he he was a young star. I think he was 23, 24, mm-hmm. and then got this typhoid, just got typhoid. fever. Yeah, and he was is he rented a room in in Irwin's house and and that's where Irwin he died. was just like oh well probably not gonna do that well this season. <laughs> well, he, he was he was their guy, right? He was their main pit, and you know pitchers threw like six hundred innings back in the day. Yeah, so, yeah. So when you lose your best guy, and I think they still finished like second or third. So mm-hmm. just think of what that season if could that, have been yeah. with Charlie. If that Curtis. guy had have lived up to the potential, then. Yeah. That surely would have put them over the top. So, maybe distracted by the dead man in his second floor. It would be distracting. Uh, uh, Irwin played particularly poorly in 1888 uh, at the age of 30. He batted just 219, and he was benched by the team uh, at the beginning of 1889, losing his starting job to a young player named Bill Hallman, who had a pretty decent career and stuff, if you actually look at his numbers, and it was his first year. So mm-hmm. so 30-year-olds out, the young kid's in. Yeah. Uh, although he did get a chance uh, again in the field after an injury to podcast story alumni, Big, L, Big Ed Delahanty. Big Ed Delahanty. It's a great story, Edzie told. Uh, his relationship with the team was on the rocks, and on June 8th, 1889, he was sold to the Washington Nationals for $3,000. Mm-hmm. Big sum of money. Once again, he was named team captain. <laughs> oh. 
He's a leader. <laughs> he is a leader. Uh, a few months later, he was declared, and he was declared player manager for the Nationals just for the last like month or so of the season. It was his first manager job, but not his last. As we learned in our last episode, the two-parter, this was a time when players were not pleased with the controlling owners of the NL. Irwin was becoming one of them. Yeah, Ir- <laughs> Irwin was becoming known as a key man in the players' union called the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players. Mm, I didn't even know that. He helped organize the players' league and purchased twelve shares of stock in the league's Boston club. Okay. Uh, so yeah, he was they were the I champs. Think, yeah, he was. Well, he was his team captain, so he yeah. was probably a you know not as big as some of the other guys, but he definitely right. and he invested into the league. So mm-hmm. uh, his Boston Reds won the players' league championship, and Irwin put up one last good year, hitting two. 60 and walking more than he struck out his best performance right. since his breakout 1883 right, campaign so as we know the players league folded mm-hmm. uh somewhat uh underhandedly yes uh, yeah. uh, so sons the, of bitches the boston reds joined the american association and hired Irwin as their manager uh, he was still kind of a player manager at this time, okay. though he'd stopped playing. Into the American that. Association? Yeah, so he's oh, in the American Association. Irwin was, was essentially blacklisted at this time by the NL owners. They accused him of encouraging American Association teams to pursue NL players in the time. In the Association yeah, War? Yeah, yeah, in the Association War. Um, and his NL t- owners are like just fucking dicks in this like whole thing. Yeah, they whole were, era. Yeah, and it's just like every team, like did, hypocritical. I mean, you know, like just oh, we're getting to that. Buddy. Oh, god oh, damn it! Um, and uh, so he was even have said uh, part of the reason they were mad at him, the NL owners, was he tried to convince Reds owner to switch leagues uh, from the American Association to the NL. Or, I mean, from the NL to the American Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He That didn't actually end up happening, though it came close to happening. And the NL were like, it was Erwin in yeah. his ear telling him to do it. Well, I mean, that's maybe understandable because the Players League did buy Cincinnati yeah. from the association, I believe, and then moved him to the Players League the yeah, previous and season. Yeah, I think so. they went to the NL, but then he was trying right, to get him to right. go back to the AA League. Right. Um, so uh, he was essentially his reputation was destroyed for a short period of time uh, in the NL at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did work in the American Association, and things did not go well for him there either. So right. in 1891, his first year, uh, he brought his brother John uh, to, on as a player after other players were injured. Uh, his players and the media declared the move to be nepotism. I would, yeah, that's John the word was a, I was going to use. John was a poor fielder, unlike his older brother, and after 18 not-so-good games, the older Irwin removed John from the team. Well, John, John like, had, like, it wasn't like he was just like, hey, my brother's coming, and he's going to play. <laughs> he's in stuff. town for the couple <laughs> yeah. weeks. He's just, uh, he, he was a ball player. He but, has a glove. But I guess the other players thought there were there were better replacements, mm-hmm. uh, both internally and externally. So, and the the media got on him. John didn't play well, so he had to fire his own brother. Okay. Uh, still, the team won the AAA pennant or the American Association pennant, but no championship was played between the American Association and the NL because partially of Irwin's uh, relationship with the NL at this time. Irwin accused the NL of game-fixing, saying the New York Giants threw a late-season series to the Boston Bean Eaters. Nobody commented on Irwin's allegation, but Cap Anson's Chicago Colts Colts were reportedly uh, had made a verbal agreement 
that if they won, they would play the American Association in a in a World Series s thing. Mm-hmm. But basically, Irwin was like, oh, the, the, the New York Giants threw that series at the end of the year so the Bean Eaters would be the champions and then yeah. they could tell me to go fuck myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bean Eaters ended up winning uh, the pennant and Frank Seeley refused to play a postseason series against the Reds. Okay. Um, so uh, he left. Uh, he actually did find his way back uh, and after a brief, brief stint in Washington... Irwin took over as manager for the Philadelphia Phillies in 1894. So, a few rough years. Now he's back into the. Now he's yeah. He managed he's there. He's made up with them and. Yeah. Okay. He managed there for two th- two seasons. Although the team did well with a record, uh, well over 500. Irwin became unpopular with the fans, the players, and the owners. Fans hated his uniform choices, adding <laughs> red and black bars to the players' leggings, which is, sounds kind of cool. A, yeah. Uh, the owner, John Rogers... It's a weird thing to... It's a weird hill to die on. Yeah, but, but I mean, they, they, they cared about their socks. Um, <laughs> the owner, now they don't even wear socks. I know. It's a sad it's a tragedy. Uh, so the owner, John Rogers, criticized his lax handling of the players. And the players disliked Irwin because some of his more intricate strategies confused them. And he was one of the first to really, like, I don't know if it was... Is he, the like, first... using the shift and stuff? No, like... he was using hand signals to, like, signal... Oh, okay. Yeah, and so, like... So they didn't, like, sign. <laughs> I guess not. He was... I can't remember that stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Just... Well, apparently on one of his later teams, he had a whole booklet of... of, of he had a playbook. Yeah, of signs that, that you had to know. And, you know, they, they, but at this time, that was so innovative. The yeah. players were like, oh, fuck me. Oh, I, I don't want to play for this guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I uh, just want to drink. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> during the same time, he was actually also managed uh, Penn State uh, at the same time. So, Busy. Yeah. Busy guy. Uh, in 1885, he left the Phillies and coached the New York Giants, the team he had accused of, <laughs> of throwing, throwing the series. series. Yep. There he scouted Nap, a young Nap Lejoie. And tried to convince ownership to sign him for $1,000. They refused. Too much money. Too much money. Uh, so at this they point... They only knew. At this point, Irwin uh, returned home to Toronto as part owner and manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, a minor league team in the Eastern League with waning support that played on Toronto Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irwin and another another number of other investors pumped money into the team trying to revitalize the organization. But the tables had turned. Irwin was now an owner. <laughs> so okay. you want to get into the hypocrisy. He had a seat at the table. That, uh, that year, the players and owners clashed about season length and player compensation. While reporting on the matter, the Buffalo Inquirer criticized Irwin, saying, uh, A know-it-all heir which oftentimes gives his friends a very severe pain in the neck. That's what they said about him. So he was quite uh, uh, combative, I guess, right. with his players. Now that he'd become a part owner, right, right. which, as you say, the hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can't tell by this point in the story, Irwin was a pretty polarizing figure. Roy Kerr described him as a skinny, bug-eyed Canadian with large, protruding ears and a healthy ego. He was an impeccable dresser and fancied himself to be a savant in the art of scientific baseball. Well, it it sounds like he kind of was with he like was. the book, the you glove, know? the, the signs. Guy. He's ahead of his time. 
everything through the whole story. No, he is absolutely. That's why we're doing this, right? He's absolutely fascinating, but he also sounds. Uh, I can definitely say from pictures he was bug eyed, um, <laughs> but he also and he had big ears. But yeah, the the it would sound like he had a, a hell of an ego, but was mm-hmm. also pretty brilliant at recognizing talent and uh, revolutionizing the game. Uh, Pitcher Wayne Hoyt. Who wasn't even born yet at this point in the story. I think he was born in 1899. Later mm-hmm. said of Erwin that he was probably the most disgusting man he ever knew. <laughs> so, like, so in what pro- ways? I don't like, know. It's just a random quote I found. And I was just like, very well, ambiguous. that's weird because this guy only would have known him as, like, a young man. So, like, that's a pretty weird thing to say. Of, yeah. Like, that old man is one of the most disgusting uh, people I ever knew. Makes me cringe a bit. Uh, yeah. So it's as Ugh. I say, there, there's some there's some red flags. There's some red flags. Uh, he's got an ego. He's smart. He he loves the game. Uh, in 1898, he pissed off his former owners in Philadelphia and faced arrest on a libel charge, uh, which stemmed from comments made by Irwin about the actions of the Philadelphia ownership during his time there. Irwin turned himself in. Uh, it appears that he was never arrested or charged or anything, even though I, uh, they said there was a charge put out there. So what, he, he made some comments to the press that were not... Well, the the Philadelphia owners were like, oh, it's libel, and, and we're writing up a charge for you. And, and he was like, fine, I'll turn myself in. Yeah. And then, and they, then were they were like, ah, like, oh, whatever. Yeah, exactly. They dropped it, or the police just didn't care. Mm. Um, one of the two. <laughs> Probably both. Probably both. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he doubled down on his uh, uh, polarizing figure by uh, trading several of his best players from Toronto to the Washington Senators late in the season. Can you guess are what this, happened? Are the next? Senators uh, the Senators are like a major league club? Yeah. So he took the Toronto team and he sold their best players, like not even in the off season, but like during the season. Yeah. Guess a- what happened a- a- next? What year was this? Eighteen. Eighteen. Uh, 18- 89? Yeah, 1898. 1898. Uh, oh, I feel like... So... I don't know, I don't... He sells his best players to the... Washington. Washington. Uh, then, Irwin was announced as the new manager of the Washington okay. Senators. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's burning his bridges everywhere he yeah. goes. Uh, he still owns a part like, of the Toronto team, but he was like manager and just like, well, all the best players are gone and I'm leaving. Yeah. Bye. See you later. Erwin <laughs> uh, announced uh, as new manager, he would uh, he coached for the 1898 and 1899 season, uh, but that ended up being the final two years of his MLB career on the field, at least. Uh, he maintained a stake in Toronto for a few more years even with fans resenting him, and even returned to manage a few years. This dude just doesn't give a fuck, clearly. No, no. Yeah. So he returned to his Penn State job earlier, and even had his brief stint as an umpire for about 50 games. <laughs> only 50 games? Yeah, in the NL. I feel like there's a reason it was only 50 games. He ejected nine players no in that 50 doubt. games span. That's a fucking lot. Yeah, in... that's, that's a lot. Most guys probably eject like nine players in like a... 109 or 162 game season. Yeah. So, so I would yeah. even think that ejecting nine guys for one umpire is probably yeah, pretty high. Yeah. 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 Especially because these were players too. I mean, yeah. maybe managed, but just like I said, he had an ego yeah. and he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. So mix those two things in and, and he was probably, he was probably like, coming out of the dugout quite a bit. Sure. Yeah. Well, he was 
on the field. He was an umpire. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> um, so probably agitated a lot of people out of the dugout is yeah. what I meant to say. Well, and, and yeah. it was like players and stuff too. He was yeah. tossing players left and right. So the rest of his life, he bounced around baseball, but still made some big contributions. He was a minor league manager for teams in Toronto, Rochester, Kansas City, and Altoona. He was chief scout for the New York Highlanders and was wrapped up in what's most likely the MLB's first sign-stealing scandal. <laughs> so he's quite innovative. In 1909, uh, New York manager of the Highlanders, New York Highlanders manager, George Stalling who we also know from uh, yes. 1914 Boston Braves fame, uh, rented an apartment overlooking Hilltop Park and sent Irwin up to steal signs from the opposing team. <laughs> Using a system of binoculars and mirrors, Irwin read the signs and flashed them back to Stalin so they could be relayed to the batter. I have no that, idea how they did this. It must be have been so elaborate, or, yeah. or it, it didn't fucking work at yeah. all. <laughs> it, just, like, it just didn't... It, uh, like, there was some, I don't know I, how you could relay the the information that fast. Yeah, well, the, like, would you, I guess, did it have like, to be a you, sunny oh, day? <laughs> would you just like turn the mirror so like well, if it flashes? Yeah, like would it have to be like a sunny day so you could like like kind of shine like reflect the light towards the somebody on the field? Like I don't know how that works. Um, if you get blinded, don't swing. <laughs> just shine it right in their yeah. eyes. But he's across the street in an apartment building. Like, eventually the plot was discovered, uh, and it didn't take long for the the league to put a stop to the behavior. Um, so, like, just broke all the mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> we smashed your mirrors. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah, just it stop it. Um, uh, we've you, cursed ourselves for seven years, but. No more cheating. You made us do it. Yeah. Uh, so he had some minor success in uh, his scouting roles, signing, finding players such as pitcher Roy Ray Caldwell, uh, and was called the Dean of Scouts by Harper's Weekly. Mm-hmm. New York man, New York manager after Stallings Frank Chance disagreed with the assessment, and after resigning, said he did not think it was possible to collect so many mediocre mediocre players on one major league club. So he was. He was not a fan. He was, yeah, he had a difference of opinion, clearly. Uh, New York's president, Frank J. Farrell, stood by Irwin's side, claiming the players' mismanagement was the reason for their lack of success. Mm-hmm. After a change in ownership a few years later, though, Irwin moved on. He this be- was the Giants still, uh, No, this was the Highlanders. Oh, The team Highlanders. that he was doing the sign-stealing scandal for. Oh, right. There's so many different... I was going to say, like... There's the fun. New York Giants and the Highlanders and the... Yeah, Dodgers. And the Islanders. And, yeah, and... It's, all, it's all crazy. So this was the Highlanders, but he left there. He became part, uh, part owner and manager of the minor league Lewiston Eagles in 1915. Uh, coached there for a few years. In 1918, he began a three-year stint managing the International League's Rochester Hustlers. In 1921, he managed the Hartford Senators of the Eastern League and caused Lou Gehrig to lose a year of college eligibility after convincing the Columbia University star player to play in some games for Hartford. (laughs) (laughs) Gehrig played under the pseudonym Lou Lewis, but it was discovered by Columbia and they forced him to sit out a full season. So I... Once it, again, though, maybe he, if they had changed his first name, yeah. But all this, like, to, like I, Bill Lewis, th- this all makes me think he was a pretty decent scout. 
considering right. like Ray Caldwell was a great pitcher that ended up drinking too much and he'd probably be a great story. But mm-hmm. you know, identifying Nap Lojoie and Lou Gehrig before yeah. others did is already just like, oh, mm-hmm. good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Those are three strong players to add to your yeah. portfolio. Uh I should at least shortly address uh, Irwin's success off the field as a businessman and an inventor. Uh, so Irwin, Baseball glove. Baseball glove. Irwin developed and patented a football scoreboard. Football scoreboard. Yes, uh, which was used in the Ivy League by the 1890s. The large scoreboard featured a miniature uh, representation of a football field. The ball moved along the board to report each play. Why is that necessary? I don't know. I don't quite... But it was the 1890s. People were like, oh, it's uh, moving. Oh, what? we can... Is we there can, a man moving it? Why no, it's do we like, need to watch it over there? We can watch it in wood up here on the fucking... <laughs> it makes no sense. It doesn't, but... I guess you're right. Probably the novelty of the scoreboard uh, moving was yeah. a big deal. It was a big deal, and it probably happened after the play, and, you know, there's there's mm-hmm. breaks in football. So like, they can... had those baseball scoreboards, like, in yeah. city centers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, like, you could well, watch I the wonder... game. Like, I get that. Yeah, well, well maybe was... that's what it was going. Maybe no, it wasn't no, necessarily... About the... they, they were like, it was used at the polo grounds during, like, a Notre Dame and... and that makes... Uh, yeah, it's just... pointless. Seems I don't pointless know. to it's, me. It, it is. But either way, he made a lot of money from his scoreboard. Well, good for him. Uh, um, uh, so the patent would earn him uh, considerable money through the rest of his life, uh, at least fifteen hundred a year in uh, royalties. So I mean, that's that's probably is this in like the twenties. No, this is like the eighteen nineties and stuff. The oh. 18, nineteen early nineteen hundreds. So well, you I mean, said like nineteen eighteen a little while. Well, that yeah, but then I went back to, to oh, okay. this is like just his overall like what he was doing oh, also okay. during this time. Right, right. Um, so so that was in the eighteen nineties. He invented the scoreboard. So fifteen hundred a year. It was about thirty forty thousand a well, that's year. Fucking pretty good. Yeah, like and just not having to do anything anymore, just because mm-hmm. you invented it, just because you made the scoreboard, uh, and you're also a major league baseball player and a manager and stuff, probably yeah. making simple money too so you're mm-hmm. you're making good buck back in the day not nearly what they'd make today but uh during his time in toronto he opened a shoe store that catered to the high class of the city so he had a high class shoe store uh, closed on sundays yeah yeah and like toronto would like write about him they were like he was like a favorite son in toronto even if he just like went to visit they'd be like arthur mm-hmm. Irwin's mm-hmm. in town well i was gonna say like i f- I haven't like heard this guy's story, but when you said Arthur Irwin at the beginning, I was like, I think I've heard of this guy. Well, as you know, he's a part of the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball club, which is still a baseball club to the day. Right. And he was it was it was rare that you know we we laid claim to him, even though he only lived in Toronto for six. years. I was going to say he wasn't here very long yeah. at the start. But. We laid claim to him, and he had friends here. He had family here, so he'd come and visit. And we'd make a big deal about it. The mm-hmm. Toronto Star would be like, Arthur Irwin, the famous baseball guy. Arthur's making... here. Yeah. Uh, uh, he also owned a chain of bicycle tracks, uh, promoted bo- boxing matches, as well as hockey games, and even was a part of the, the first ever pro soccer league in North America, mm-hmm. which okay. is very interesting because apparently they, they named all the teams, like, it was like, you know, the... Boston Red Sox. It was like, oh, you're the Boston Red Sox, but you play soccer. They just named them after <laughs> yeah, the baseball yeah, yeah. teams. They just named them after the baseball teams in the city. Um, uh, needless to say, he was a pretty wealthy man uh, by the 1910s. Seems like people back then liked to be confused. You know, <laughs> you go to the Red Sox game? Which Red Sox game? The soccer one oh, or the no, baseball I'm one? I'm going to the baseball one, then the soccer Wait, one. Wait, let me check my ticket. Oh, no, oh, crap. Oh, no, it's no, the no. soccer one. Oh, Carry on. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> Needless to say, he was he was doing pretty well for himself. But during the 1921 season, Irwin's health began to fail him. And his secret life came to light. His secret life. His secret life. Oh. He began having digestive issues and lost nearly 60 pounds in two weeks. Wow. He was diagnosed. He had become quite portly by this time. So uh, mm. so. So he could afford to lose it? He Is that what probably you're could have afforded to lose it. You know, he hadn't played uh, really since the early 1890s. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't that active anymore, even though it sounded like he was, you know, big in sports still. So he was diagnosed with stomach cancer at the age of 63. Uh, which was a terminal diagnosis. They gave him, mm-hmm. they gave him months, maybe even right. weeks. Um, so this was the beginning of the end for Irwin. His body had began to break down, and so had the secret he had been harboring for 26 years. While in the hospital, his family discovered, well, that he had... I'm a broom dressed as a horse. <laughs> <laughs> well, his family discovered his family. Oh, he had another family. He had two families. Two families. Uh, when he was managing Philadelphia, the 36-year-old Irwin had become smitten with a local lady named May, who was 20-something. Whether the two married or not is not actually clear, but clearly began acting publicly as man and wife, and eventually settled in New York City to parent two daughters and a son, Harold. Which was strange, considering, if you remember, Irwin already had a wife and four children in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's, I mean, it's weird, but it's not that weird. It's not that weird, <laughs> but the fact that they did not know. I was going to say, yeah, no the, I was going to say the age, the age of, like, just the newspaper. Yeah. You know, just, not even the telephone. Yeah. So, there was no divorce with Elizabeth, his first wife. It was just... Like, hey, I'm busy doing baseball and inventor stuff, so I'm yep, traveling yep. all over. I'll see but you. But definitely I see not you. being the husband in another family situation. <laughs> I don't have more kids. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't like my family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, his secret came to light when his New York son Harold visited him, and doctors and staff said his brother Herbert had already visited him that day. But if you remember, he only had one son from each family. Mm-hmm. So the brother, Harold, was like, very who's confused. Herbert? Who's Herbert? <laughs> You're like, oh, your brother was here, Herbert. And he was like, I don't have a brother. And then and doctors were like, oh. See, it also depends how you tell the story, too, because I'm fairly certain it was just kind of like one of those, just like people started asking questions and it came to light. Mm-hmm. But but a couple couple sources were like, they ran into each other at the hospital at his yeah. bedside. Well, like, you of know, course. The, the Hollywood version yeah, of like. To sensationalize yeah, yeah, like, the news. I'm at my dad's dead bedside and he's dying. Who are you? Like, yeah. you know, so. It's like the Eddie Wakis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to put you here in front of the picture of Eddie and you're going to write him a letter. This is the news. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so when the secret came out, it uh, shocked both families, but the clues were there. Irwin had spent little time with Elizabeth uh, and his Boston family in the last couple decades of his life. And would sometimes refer to his son Herbert as Harold when he visited them in Boston. Oh, no. 
<laughs> Dad, my name's Herbert, not Harold. Oh yeah, thank. I mean, sorry, that's my other son. No, how you doing, son? <laughs> so neither of the families knew about the other families. Neither Is that what's family. Going? Oh, yeah. So okay. neither family. All right. So like the the second family, she doesn't even know that she's like the mistress to like another family. Oh my God. Oh, no. Okay. Um, so, this guy is juggling. Yeah. He's a juggler, too. Uh, Elizabeth, his first wife, right. uh, claimed to have not known, although she did say relatives had suspected Irwin to have been with another woman. Uh, even with his fortune, he gave his Boston family such little money that his first wife was pretty much destitute. <laughs> so he was a, like, I, I a feel piece so, of shit. I feel so bad for his first wife, and you're going to find out, like, why. But, like, I mean, it's just... I, I, well, I already, already know. Feel, so, so you, like, abandon them without being, like, without formally, like, abandoning them. Yeah. And, you know, sent a little money every now and then, visited, and was like, hey, Harold, and he's like... Definitely oh, didn't Howard. invent that scoreboard thing, yeah. either. <laughs> I don't make any money yeah, off of I'm that. Yeah, I'm very poor. Yeah. Um, so... On July 14th, 1921, a dying Irwin got on a boat to take him from New York to Boston. He told fellow passengers, I'm going home to die. Which is a weird thing to say to people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he acted despondent and depressed, uh, according to witnesses. I mean, it is a weird thing to say to people, but like, that is also true. Like, right. He was dying. He was mm-hmm. a dying man. Mm-hmm. Um, he was last seen alive on the deck of the boat around midnight on July 16th. The boat docked in Boston, but Irwin was gone. His luggage still in his room. Irwin's body was never found, and his death was ruled a suicide. Hmm. With investigators figuring he had jumped or fell overboard, but I guess if you're ruling it a suicide, it sounded like they were like, oh yeah, he He jumped over. He He said he was going to die, and then he probably did. Yeah. So... Also, and also the fact that he had to probably come home to Boston to explain everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, So he's dead. Uh, News of his double life found its way to the press, uh, who wrote vivaciously about the scoop, as they would in 1921. As they would, for sure. Uh, Both families seemed surprised by his double life. His New York wife, May, says she never suspected a thing about having a family and a wife in Boston. And his Boston wife, May, or his Boston Elizabeth. wife, Elizabeth, blamed May for the whole affair, saying the New York t- saying to the New York Times that the Arthur mis- was a good man. Yeah, oh. that the missteps of her late husband must have been entirely the fault of May. So this this scarlet woman took 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 my husband. Yeah, this hard. He still loved me. Yeah. Like that's why I feel bad for this woman. Nah. Uh like Liz, Sad. here's the, here's a quote. I feel confident and happy in the belief that although he had another woman in New York, he was on his way to me when he died. That he knew he was dying and turned to me as the woman he truly loved at the last moments. He wanted to die in my arms. She is quoted as saying in the same New York Times piece. So that's pretty friggin' delusional. Well, yeah, but whatever, you know, whatever lets the endorphins flow through your brain, you know? It gets worse. Irwin oh. had sold his stake in the scoreboard company before his death oh. for $2,000, which is pretty what? light. No kidding, he made 1500 a year. Yes, but he gave 50 If you want to know how delusional Elizabeth is, uh, 
After selling it, he gave fifteen hundred to May and his New York family, and gave five hundred to Elizabeth and uh, the Boston family. Poor thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's delusional, but oh. like, my point is just yeah. like you know, if that lets her sleep better at night, oh yeah, let her believe that Arthur was coming home to her. Oh uh, yeah, she was kind of probably protecting her own honor too. And yeah, that's uh, that's. Yeah. So, uh, upon his death, uh, his son Herbert and his brother John, who we talked about, launched an investigation into his estate, seeking to compensate his Boston family, and later claimed that business partner in the scoreboard industry, John Julian P. Hart, of underhandedness in the sale of the scoreboard royalties. So, it's probably, they're probably just like, yeah, you took advantage of a dying man and like, Sold mm-hmm. them short, you know? Yeah. It is said that Irwin had, like, a lot of uh, bills to pay, he put it, I guess, when yeah. he was writing, being like, sorry, there's not a lot of money left. I got bills to pay, yeah. which is a weird thing to say as you're, like, dying. But, yeah. You know, uh, so that that's what he said. Um, Maybe getting your affairs in order was different back then. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So rumors uh, that Irwin's death may not have been what it seemed began to circulate as well. Some claiming he was robbed and murdered on the boat. Who? Who's saying that and why? I guess you're going to tell me evidence of why. Not really. No? Um, Okay. Random speculation. People began saying he had over $5,000 with him at the time. The witnesses and family... uh, presented contrary evidence being like no he had like 40 bucks like it was not mm. you know which would like be like a few hundred bucks but not murder money yeah. um like five thousand would be like a hundred thousand right like mm-hmm. uh so some even claimed he faked his own death according to a 1922 letter at cooperstown from a former teammate of Irwin, said how can Irwin be dead i just saw him in oklahoma he writes me every week yeah <laughs> it's so <laughs> I, I couldn't, like, I, I should have looked in, but, but there's apparently a letter from someone being, like, finding out about his death and being like, that's weird, I just saw him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's freaking okay. very that, strange. That's suspect. Um, so, uh, for years, there were rumors that he was living in rural Georgia under an assumed name. Irwin's sister, or one of Irwin's sisters, answered the accusation by saying, well, with Irwin... Or with Arthur, you never know. <laughs> just like, well, you know, he, he could have he, faked his death yeah. to escape. That's his Arthur. He wanted a third family. We all knew he wanted three families. He said that to me once. One time we were having drinks after Thanksgiving, and he said, you know, I really wish I had a third family. <laughs> and we said, Arthur, you only have one family. And, he and said, then he oh, shut up. Yeah. And then he said, nothing. <laughs> nothing, nothing. And then no. he was gone the next week. <laughs> so I mean that's the thing is like is 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 because he was such a character and all the like it's one of it's like one of those snowball effects right it's like somebody dies and then all of a sudden like it's like oh it turned out he had two mm-hmm. families like it's like obviously there's, the yeah. story the press wants too a many story people to sad keep, well and this press wants a story to keep going and and people like any little bit of evidence right that that he might have something different might have happened. Like, they didn't find a body. They didn't find a suicide note. They didn't find anything other mm-hmm. than his luggage was left in his cabin. Yeah. Right? So it's just like, who knows what actually Maybe happened. Maybe he was kidnapped. Yeah, exactly. Like, any, anything. Anything could have happened. Uh, like, obviously, like, nobody saw anything on the boat, but, you know, they, they, he just... He just vanished. Vanished. Uh, so Irwin was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Was in, he at the ceremony? No. 
Oh. No. It would, well, first of all, it was in 1989. I know. <laughs> but, yeah. That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, probably, he probably had a son there that didn't know he was his son. <laughs> his Toronto family. That yeah, never, like, that, that secret stayed. Wait a second. <laughs> uh, and as we said at the beginning, to this day, is probably the greatest shortstop to ever come out of Canada. Mm-hmm. Greatest the, story of a shortstop oh, ever. It's not a short story. Oh no, I don't. I, it uh, it was. Uh, I don't even know how I found this one, but I. I it was just. It was just wild to to just be like, okay, so you know, you kind of start with well, like you had the two families, and then like, oh, yeah, we it was invented g- the glove, but then all the other stuff in between too is just like he well, had that, that hell of a baseball. Life. That story just like started up and down, like with his career, but then like his whole life just became like a fucking yeah. wild roller coaster. Well, there, I was not expecting that. Well, that's the thing; he only had like what, like a 11, 12 year major league career. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a manager for for almost yeah. a, and involved in t- baseball. For, yeah, it was for it sports was sports at least. Yeah, no, so all the that little stuff, the sign ceiling scandal, the Charlie Ferguson dying mm-hmm. in his house, like yeah. he's just he's just a, a, the Canadian Forrest Gump of baseball back then and being a, <laughs> in the players league and all that stuff, like just just he he, he lived and, and breathed the whole game mm-hmm. and like holy hell. And then his life off the field is just like like I get how it happened and I honestly thought it was actually gonna be worse when I started getting into this. Mm-hmm. Like secret families and polygamy and all this yeah. stuff and I'm yeah. just like, Oh no, he just essentially abandoned a family, started a new one and just told and neither told neither of them anything about each other. Yeah, so he was a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. Well, that that's Arthur Irwin. Uh, tune in in two weeks uh edzie will have a story for me i'm sure that's right i'm looking forward to it yeah so follow us on twitter uh at doing baseball and on instagram at doing dot baseball and check us out on spotify apple podcasts i'm gonna try and get us on google play or something like that or whatever the google yeah that'd be cool uh one is so yeah, yeah, android yeah. users can get us there too if yeah, they're well, not spotify or whatever but wherever you're listening to this stay safe uh enjoy uh baseball for uh however long yeah, it will was, be on that was a lot longer than i expected it man what the the story yeah that's or the, the mlb league has the mlb has made it longer than you expected well that too yeah yeah, yeah well, well it, see how much we can enjoy much longer we exactly. can enjoy baseball watch it, it was, the end is nigh. the end is definitely nigh. all right i'm sean and i'm Ed. and we were doing some baseball okay. enjoy yourselves okay bye bye